And this buying experience is more important than ever. And it's even more important than the product. Obviously I work in IT, but in having incumbent technology from a sales perspective is often hard to overcome. In B2C, 79% of people said the actual buying experience was more important than the product. But in B2B, 85% of people said the experience was more important than the product itself. Welcome back to another episode of the How to Sell podcast. I'm your host, Luigi Prestonenzi, and as always, I'm joined by another gentleman, Dave. Welcome to the How to Sell podcast. Thank you, Louis. You should be well used to it now. We're like uh, 10 episodes in almost, and you're still struggling. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'll ever get over the fact that I have a co-host, Dave, so you're just going to have to have to deal with the banter of me Um of, of you being the, the second fiddle on, on, on our show. But if you're, if you're joining us for the first time, welcome to the How to Sell podcast. Um, we hope you take away some value that's going to help you, help you improve your conversions, help you improve your sales process. Um, and if you're a long-time listener, thank you for coming back. Uh, we value your support. Um, we create this podcast to help you uh, be the best salesperson you can be. Um, but the How to Sell podcast is designed it's got a bit of a different flavor to it where we interview buyers so we can give you the perspective of the buyer and so that you can change the way that you sell in the way that people buy. And this week um, we've had, we've got a great guest who's worked all over the world in an enablement role um, to continue on the, the, the path that we've been doing, the journey around how to sell to enablement. But before we let you introduce the guest, I just want to say, Dave, um, it's been another week in sales. I'm actually, as you can see, I'm not in my trusty studio. I'm in my uh, garage of a house that I'm renovating. And one thing that I've realized is I've realized why I love selling so much because I can, I'm renovating a house and I am terrible using my hands in a trade world. So I'm very fortunate that I can sell. He's have to book in twice to get his manicure done. So uh, <laughs> look at these hands. Like. Yeah, it's, and and for our guests, for our audience, Dave actually lives not too far from here, and he has promised to come and help me. And every time he comes, he comes at the end of the day, five o'clock, to say I'm here to help when we're finishing and packing up. So you're Why a great. You that's when the work. That's when the work should be. <laughs> you're a great co-host, Dave. So thank you. It's almost <laughs> as bad as the football team that you support, but. Let's bring this week's guest. So this week's guest um, is a fellow fellow Melbourneian, uh, and we're really, really excited. I've had the privilege of knowing Georgia for a number of years, uh, who's doing amazing things and has done some has done amazing things in the sales enablement community. So welcome to the How to Sell podcast, Georgia. Oh, thank you very much, Luigi. Really um, great to be on. Yeah. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, well, I know we've been trying to get this for a long time, so it's great to it that we're finally here. Um, but for our listeners, I mean, I know a bit about your background, but can you just give us uh, just a short intro, obviously, um, where you're currently working, um, the regions that you've worked in? I think that's pretty important. You've, you've had uh, the opportunity to work across multiple regions. Um, and then we can get into the podcast. Yeah, sure. Happy to, Luigi. Um, so I have had quite a winding uh, career journey um, and it you know, started off in marketing. I wanted to be a CMO. That was the goal. And that kind of changed along the way. And I've spent some time working in consulting as well as marketing, digital transformation, change management, and then moved into this skill area. And as you mentioned, mm -hmm. Luigi, I've done that in many different parts of the world now, which has been really cool. So um, I'm 
I'm a Melbourneian, I'm Australian, um, grew up here. Uh, when I had the opportunity to travel, I went as far away from home as possible. So I ended up living and working in Africa um, for eight years and then spent some time working across um, the Middle East as well and then took on some roles covering Europe, Middle East and Africa. But now I'm back home in APAC and covering this part of the world. So it's it's amazing how interesting and diverse um, those kind of places can be, even when you're doing the same kind of role. Yeah, I'd love to know. I mean, given that you um, and you work for a, a you know a huge organisation, probably the most well known, one of the most well known brands in the in any in any industry, IBM. Um, I'd love to know. One of the questions I wanted to ask you, sort of getting into today, was around. What are the differences between selling, say, in the Dubai region, because obviously you lived there for a number of years, um, Mm -hmm. to Australia? Yeah. Look, um, and thanks for mentioning IBM. I didn't actually say my role, but right now I lead sales <laughs> enablement for um, for IBM in a market we call ASEAN ZK, which is a, a subset within APAC. But Luigi, yeah. it, it is hugely different, right, in different parts of the world. All these cultural kind of nuances that come into play. I think that the basics, like and the basic of any strong sales approach remains the same, but how mm. you execute it, how you approach someone is very different. So Australians, for example, we are really direct and blunt and to the point. In some parts of Africa, responding to things really directly is um, not kind of the style that's used, right? It's more of a storytelling approach where you go around it before you kind of get to your point. And it's the same in the Middle East. You know, there's just Mm. all these different nuances that that come into play, particularly when you think about how you're building that rapport and relationships with people at that front end of the sales cycle, particularly. Did you find that that longer, like that storytelling approach, did that elongate the deal buying cycle or the the selling process or was it roughly the same? I, I... from my experience, I didn't see much difference in the change in sales cycle, but it may have changed your length of meetings, for example. So mm. maybe the the time that was put in to get it to certain stages took longer because there was more more conversation around different points. Whereas, you know, maybe in Australia, perhaps we're we're more direct and really cut cut to the chase. Walk us through like how are in IBM, such a big company, how are decisions how are decisions made and who gets involved? Now, before everyone starts messaging me saying they have something to sell, <laughs> one thing I want to make really clear, right, is there a, like, this is a huge multinational company. And I say that because I have people hit me up in DM saying, we can optimize your website. And I say, which website? Your yeah. company website. Okay, which company website? You know, the one guy company, you know, is coming to me saying they're going to fix it. It's a huge company. A lot of things are established and there's a lot of different people doing different things. So within a sales enablement role, there are some areas that are in my remit to take decisions around. There are some that I influence around and there are some things that I don't touch at all, Mm -hmm. right? There are some things that are managed at a global level for the entire organization around the globe. And this is a lot of our things are quite standard, particularly when we think about um, sales processes, the supporting tools um, and the structures and methodologies that we're using are all pretty standard across the board. And then there's some tweaking and additions kind of between them. So this is interesting, right? Because I think, um, and we've interviewed, we had in, we had Tim from Lusha recently, who doesn't have, you know, a huge enablement team like you do, right? Or especially part of a global um, team. So 
I think it's really interesting that you bring this up, right? Because I think um, this is where a lot of sellers can get it wrong. They are, they use the same strategy across both small to medium and large, and enterprise based accounts, but it's actually very different, right? Um, yeah. So can we actually can we take it back a step? Um, so you mentioned your remit. What from a um, in your particular remit? What are some of the things that you control? The areas of focus uh, and KPIs that are fundamentally critical to you achieving your, you know, your, your, your job outcomes? Mm-hmm, sure. So sales enablement is it's about increasing revenue, right? That's kind of where it, yeah. where it started from and it's now expanded quite dramatically to include everything and anyone that is in the, the customer journey, anything that can influence that buying experience. Um, so I kind of like to think about it in terms of a few different areas. So it's about skills, behaviours and culture is kind of the first set that falls within enablement and my remit and we have goals and targets around. The next one is really about tools and processes, what tools we have, what processes need to be optimised and getting them working efficiently um, to make sure our team are as effective and productive as possible. And then the other piece, which is quite common in sales enablement, is around content and creating Mm -hmm. content to support the team, but also culture. The culture a company has, the culture a team has, has such a big impact on performance and how how people work. And in your, you know, you mentioned that your your responsibility is helping drive revenue. Um, From a focus perspective, are you focused on helping the soft skill development that enables sellers to improve that sales conversation or do you focus more on the product side of things and enabling them to understand how the product works and um, how mm-hmm. it helps it, your customers? Yeah, so right now my focus is on a bit of both of those. So okay. basic um, soft skills, some of it is product knowledge and how to use the tools that are available to help them, you know, as they go through the sales process. So that's a focus yeah. at the moment in my previous role. But this is where market differences come into play, right? So before I moved to this part of the region, what I was focusing on was pretty different. It was more around looking at sales cycles, identifying where there were trends, identifying where deals can be accelerated and what support is needed there. So quite different market to market. But right now it is it is um, very much focused about skills. All right. So ne- next up, I think it was it was a good idea to talk about, you know, in your world, you know, Georgia, you, you're probably getting sold to quite a lot. Um, you, can you walk us through, you know, what does a business case look like when you're looking to make a purchase um, to help your team? Um, walk us through that process and how to sign off gained internally. Yeah, I, I'll tell you about it um, high level. I think it's not really that different in IBM than anywhere else, right? It comes down to the value. It comes down to the impact long and short term. And these are the key considerations that are made with any investment, right? There are certain times of the year when maybe um, there's more opportunity to put forward investments cases when we're going through our, our planning cycles and other times of the year when it's not even possible. And so for me in enablement, I don't hold any budget. So if I want to get budget, it's then to go through the processes to secure that budget going up the line. If it's tech related, if it's about our tech stack, then of course the CTO needs to be involved as well as the CFO. If there's anything that sales use, of course, our sales leaders need to be involved as well. Um, Mm. So sort of going through all that process to, to um, to secure the funds if there is something that you want to do, if it's out of cycle. 
And of course, there are other sales enablement roles that are different. So we were saying about how big IBM is. So somebody mm. sitting in a global team, there are a couple of people and it's actually their role just to go through and find and ensure we have the best tools that are out there available to our sellers. That's really? their job. And they go through and they are reviewing our tools and our processes to make sure that we have great stuff. And we have a heap of really smart people working at IBM. And it's kind of funny. Sometimes these tools land We're like, oh, okay, that, that sounds good. And it's maybe two or three years later, we go, oh, okay, now we, we all understand mm -hmm. why this tool is, is really needed, which is so yeah. cool is when there are people really focused in on something, they can really identify yeah. what is, what is the need, perhaps even before the teams in market or in the geography realize. Pardon the interruption, but I have to let you know about this free resource. The Growth Forum newsletter has over 10,000 subscribers that are learning how to sell. Each and every week, we send you tips, strategies, and also some tools and tech on how to achieve the most out of your sales pipeline. If you're ready to level up, sign up for free at growforum.io forward slash newsletter and get the first issue this week. And what, what involvement do they have? What do you have in that process? when they're looking for additional pieces of technology to bring into the org? Yeah, it depends on the tool. Um, okay. There's always opportunity to give input and feedback and I'm always the first person to stick my hand up to pilot something and that's yeah. often an approach that we would take is pilot something on a small scale first before you go, yeah. you know, around the globe with it. Um, so it depends on what it is, depends on how it's going to be used and who it influences um, yeah. and how far the reach is in terms of how I can influence it. Yeah, because that's really interesting, and I'm 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 really glad you're touching on this, right? Because I think for a lot of a lot of sellers, um, the objective is to get to the decision maker. But in a lot of cases, especially, and I've you know having sold in enterprise for over a decade, um, you know it wasn't always as easy as just going to the decision maker. You needed the key influencers and the, the key champions, and I would consider um, your role in the pro buying process would be more of the champion, right? Where you would have to mm -hmm. um, be the internal sponsor, define a problem. Um, and do you mind maybe just walking us through uh, an experience that you've been a part of where you wanted to bring something in? You don't have to talk about what exactly it was, but yep. you saw a need or a gap. You wanted to bring something in. Can you just maybe walk us through what did that look like and how did you get consensus from above yeah. to get approval? Yeah. Or if you, if you didn't get approval, you know, what happened? Yeah, sure. I'll tell you about a slightly different example first. So yep. this is one that happened earlier this year. So there was a global um, agreement that was made for a service around coaching. And yep. this was signed up globally and kind of divvied out across the geos. And this was something that I'd been trying to get in place for quite a while um, in, a, in a different way. And so once we had this agreement in place, I saw the value. I went to my stakeholders within the geography and said, hey, this great thing is coming. Here's the impact that it can make on our business and our people. Should we scale up? And here's how much maybe we could do it. 
And that decision was made then at a geography level by my market leader. It then went through finance and uh, back up to global. And we were able to dramatically scale that service within Mm. market because it had already been agreed. So we now have kind of four times what any other market has of this offering, which is having a a huge, um, a huge impact. So that's one example. In another example that was less successful, so when I was in one of my previous roles, um, found a great tool that I wanted to use and put forward the business case, I took that to my uh, local leader in country and that then went up through a geography level and there was support from the business side. Then it went over to the technology team. So anything new goes through the CTO team. Mm. And because we already have an established tech stack, if there's anything with sort of overlapping needs, at some point it becomes, well, if we get this, that other thing has to go, even if yeah. it's, you know, different features and functions and all that sort of thing. So that in that instance, even though we had the local state stakeholders supporting, we had some support from finance, it didn't go ahead because of the, the CTO team dub where we have something that we are using yeah. globally already that we don't want to rip out and replace because you in one geography want to do something different. Yeah. So there is this need to kind of standardise but also mm. opportunity to customise um, and particularly scale scale as well. So that's really interesting. I've never yeah. thought about it in that way where, you know, what are you replacing, who's using it, mm. and the effort to rip that out and then bring something else in. There's quite a lot of, quite a lot of work just in that project alone. Yeah. Then comes yeah. the implementation of your new product or service over the top of that. Yeah, and this is the, the typical tech challenge, right? Obviously I work in IT, but in, having incumbent technology from a sales perspective is often hard to yeah. overcome. And even yeah. from an enablement perspective, take like our CRM system, you know, sales enablement, there's heaps of content being created and shared. And so we have an existing system that we're using that to get off that, it will be so much mm. effort to pull that data, migrate it, retag it and put it into something else. And I actually even had an interesting conversation with um well, I had, I, so I accepted a sales call around someone who was offering a competitive product. I'd been in yeah. touch with the, the rep for quite a while. He was doing an amazing job with all his social selling and he'd been going for a long time. And I kind of said, look, you know, you know, we have the competitive product in store. It's like, yeah, I know, but let's just have a chat. And he wanted me to come and speak at an event too. So I'm like, all right, let's jump on the phone. And so I accepted this call and I stayed up late to have a chat to these guys in the U.S., and just before the call started, he sent me a message and he said, oh, my manager's going to join. I said, okay. So we jumped on the call and what happened? So his his manager came on the call as well. And I was kind of open to hearing about it, but she she came in and she took over the call, you know, within a few seconds. And she's like, right, you know, we know you're using this product at the moment for your, 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 your approach. Um, what are the issues with it? I'm like, well, you know, there aren't really any major issues with it. We're pretty happy yep. with it. And there are a few things that are, you know, little things that just from a user perspective, I'm like, oh, that's not great. It's like, right, but what else? What else is wrong with it? I'm like, well, nothing. And she kind of continued on this kind of line of trying to understand what mm. I was not happy with this kind of product about. And it, it really was off-putting and turned me yeah. off like the the whole brands and um, just from this super aggressive trying to attack what's wrong with the competitive yeah. products when you know I have that installed is you kind of miss an opportunity yeah. to right to build that rapport and have that relationship mm. 
if in the future the tech we're using, you know, no longer serves our need, I could just say, hey, yeah. you know, let's have a chat. But now I'll be really hesitant to 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 mm. kind of go down that path. Mm. And along the way, as yeah. the drilling kind of continued, I said, look, I, I don't have, I'm not making the decision here. I don't hold budget around that. And that was then, book. the call was done. I thought, oh, it was just um, really poor, right? She didn't even ask, okay, so who makes that decision? How can you influence, you know, like, it, you know, even thinking if she wants to take that approach with someone else, she didn't even ask, okay, so who, who is that person who makes the decision? Can you introduce me to them? I probably wouldn't have done it, but um, yeah. kind of lost opportunity. So, so yeah. I left the call feeling bad for that guy who did probably six months of groundwork to, to get there. Um, can I, and I, look, and I appreciate you sharing this. It's something I want to do, I do jump on, right, because I think um, it's – in, from what I'm hearing, it's not just about there was an opportunity within IBM, but in the ever the event that you would leave and take a role like our our friend Tim from, you know, he went from Oracle, which was again probably the same kind of matrix style enablement function, mm-hmm. so many mm-hmm. different people into a business where he's solely responsible and influencing, right? So I think in that scenario, they were so short-term focused in that meeting that they've actually missed a great opportunity, right? Um, but what I'd love to know, um, what part of, you said six months, but what part of a, me- what, what message finally triggered you to say, you know what, I'm going to take this meeting, even though there might not be an opportunity for us, I'm going to take it. Like, what, what did he do that triggered you to take that meeting? So I think a key part was around like the personalization of all the communication. Like he had, he had done the research, he knew the competitive product, he knew my role, he um, gave the impression that he really understood what my priorities were and what I needed to achieve. So he'd done that groundwork, um, but all of that kind of yeah. came in much later, right? This is someone who just reached out on LinkedIn we were connected. Um, he was sharing interesting content. So I was learning from mm. what he was posting and engaging with mine. So there was this kind of basic rapport already before he kind of then got into a bit more of the sales mode. And this is the value of like social selling, right? It's kind of like you, you feel yeah. like you know someone a little bit, you know, it's the yeah. opposite if you just connect with someone and they hit you with the pitch and you just really quickly then go and hit remove connection as fast as you can. <laughs> yeah. So he, he, it was just like, so he wasn't in a rush. So it was the exact opposite of when he got his um, his boss on the call with him, unfortunately. Yeah. I, I think the other thing I was, you know, just reflecting on that experience now, it can be really easy to lose sight of this experience piece. I think as salespeople, and this is something that where I'm focused on at the moment, you know, there's still sometimes a tendency to talk about like the products and features and how that compares to the competition. But in the example of that call, it so negatively impacted the experience. And this buying experience is more important than ever. And it's even more important than the product. So Salesforce actually did some research around this. And in B2C, 79% of people said the actual buying experience was more important than the product. Yep. Now, the crazy thing, well, you kind of expect that in you know, consumer buying, but in B2B, 85% of people said the experience was more important than the product itself. So it really just reiterates how much we need to focus on the experience. And that starts too with those initial cold outreach all the way along mm-hmm. the buyer journey. I and think, it's um, a great 
sort of follow on from there. So like when dealing with sales people, you know, what, what triggers you to, to take a meeting? Is it that, you know, consultative led approach or, you know, what's your, what you know, sparks your interest to say, yep, yeah, let's jump on a call. I will take a problem. I will, I will take a call if they have a solution to a problem that I have. Yeah. See, the problems are always on our minds, right? Yeah. If if anyone has a problem, it's it's sitting there. And if if I think, okay, this is something that could help me address that problem, or this is something yeah. that can add value to the work that I'm doing, then I I will jump on a call. And I'd love to just go back, right? Because you made a, I mean, that's a really powerful statement, right? That. The buying experience, seventy or nine percent, is is heavily led, or heavily influenced by that that experience. Um, do you mind maybe thinking about an ex- a scenario where you were part of that buying process, um, where the experience was incredibly memorable, and what what did the seller or what did the organisation do that made it so memorable for you? I bought a car about a year ago. Okay. Everybody loves to buy, right? But we hate yep. being sold to. Um, when I went to this dealership, they did one of the best sale jobs, sales jobs I have ever kind of seen. And it was this ultimate positioning of, I'm not here to sell you anything. I just want to advise you. So you understand the options. They didn't use that word, right. But coming in as that your partner in the buying journey, coming in as your advisor, you know, when they went through, you know, comparing different options and, and different details, but continually listening to every kind of comment I was saying, right, and then um, going in a different direction because of it. So, Luigi, I know you're brilliant at this, but this, you know, like really listening to what people say and taking that on board and adjusting your conversation accordingly. Not all salespeople do this, right? Sometimes it's very, I'm so focused on getting this deal to close. Let me focus on progressing this from A to B. And I'm in such a rush to do that. Maybe I, I miss that cue that there's something else that I need to consider. Maybe it's not an outright objection, but it's something else that I need to kind of factor in. She only wants black or gray and we can't get the others, you know, in country for another six months, right? And that could be a passing co- a comment, right? And I, I saw a car in there, I'm like, oh, that black looks great, doesn't it? And then he kind of shifted everything like, oh, these are the, you know, so it was just really, really smartly, um, smartly done. Do you have a great product, but are struggling to reach more customers? Are you spending hours on sales activities that aren't generating results, leaving you feeling frustrated and discouraged? The Sales OS program is a step-by-step operating system that will help you slash your selling hours in half while rapidly growing your revenue. In under just two weeks, you can be well on your way to creating predictable revenue. In Sales OS, we'll show you how to build predictable sales pipeline build lasting relationships with your customers, and sell more in less time. The art of negotiation and motivating and leading a successful sales team. If this sounds like something that you need in your business, visit growforum.io forward slash sales and apply to see if you have the right mindset to achieve predictable revenue. The Sales Always program is your ticket to predictable revenue. Don't wait any longer, apply today. So he was listening to really understand versus listening to respond. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's funny, right? Because often, um, and I've given this a lot of thought because I, at the moment, um, as I mentioned at the start, um, and as you know, we've spoken about this offline, um, you've recently renovated a place and I'm, I'm on that same process. And mm-hmm. it's amazing how 
decision fatigue can actually kick in, right? Because you're overwhelmed with the amount of decisions that you have to make. And I often refer to the fact that we as, as consumers, we buy in a certain way and we kind of, we even buy in a certain way buying business related products. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's just a little bit different because obviously the emotional connection, it's our personal money that we're using to buy, say, for a house. It might not be our personal money, but there are other nuances that connect to that buying journey, right? Um, and so it's so interesting that you bring this up about um, the pivot, that they're not sort of trying to get you and, and back to that other scenario where it was, um, let me find out what's not working with the other provider. They were so focused on filling their need because they thought if we can define a problem, even if the problem is really insignificant and it's not even there, but it, it, mm. it gives us a reason to continue, yeah. um, you know, they've actually missed a great opportunity. And so I love the way that you've explained, uh, you know, your buying experience with the car. It was somebody was attentive. They came across as your advisor. Um, they heard what you were saying, they pivoted the conversation and they were able to help you achieve an outcome. So I think mm-hmm. that's a kind of perfect representation of what great selling looks like. Yeah, it, it is, right? And it is that experience too. And I know in mm. one of your your previous podcasts, you spoke to you, um, Tim Stansky, who you mentioned yes. earlier, and he was talking about a decision that he had to make. And he was making that decision based on um, the fabulous service and support that he was getting. I think you mentioned he had a, a CSM who was amazing. Yeah. And so he was kind of basically basing his decision on the kind of level and support and this feeling yeah. of partnership that he had on what product he was going to buy next. And you've had other guests mm-hmm. on who've also kind of said, um, so it was Reagan Barker. She was deciding yeah. between two different products and there was one that was giving this amazing kind of experience and doing, um, you know, a really great job on their sales, but their price was significantly higher than mm. the other guys. And even the price wasn't really a factor in her decision. It was about that experience and that personalization that she was getting. And you mentioned about emotion too, Luigi, and buying stuff as a consumer with our own money is a hundred percent emotional. Yeah. But I would even say if you're buying something as a business, there's still heaps of emotion, emotion. in that decision. Like it's not your yeah. money that you're spending, but the impact is so yeah. high, right? Do you want to be the one um, associated with the purchase that really didn't meet mm. the needs, it didn't deliver what it was meant to? In some places that kind of stuff can be career limiting, right? Correct. And it's also that emotion with with the work spend or you know, if, if you're working, you're spending somebody else's money. You're actually not just spending somebody else's money. You're also impacting people's time. Like, what if you bring in something that not just doesn't work, but then you've got all these salespeople from your role that have to go through a process or use a new tech, and mm-hmm. it completely disrupts their day. And then they start, you know, complaining to their managers, and all of a, a sudden, you've got that risk. fear of, yeah. Um, and as we know, like emotion drives decisions and that's what mm-hmm. often people lose confidence in. I think that's one of the things that Jen Allen constantly talks about is the no decision is the biggest killer to deals in your pipeline and often it's because people just lack confidence in what you're saying and in, in the capability that it can actually help them achieve that outcome. So, um, Georgia, I could talk about this stuff with you for pretty much forever um, but I just wanted to say I think this has been a great episode for our audience. There's a lot of key takeaways um, which we will, at the end of this episode, so for our audience, stay on because we will do a bit of a, a deep dive 
And we've actually come up with a bit of a, a scenario on how to sell. If we were selling to Georgia, how would we sell? Um, but just a bit of a, a tip for you. If you do reach out to Georgia, please, please, please take on board what she says. Personalize your message. Don't just blast her a note and try to sell to her. Personalize. Try to build that rapport. Um, and George, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on our podcast. We value the contribution that you're making, not just to enablement, but to the sales community. My pleasure. Thanks so much for the invite, Luigi. Great to talk with you both. Thank you, Georgia. Hey, Dave, what an awesome chat. Um, that was amazing. Uh, look, you know, we've both sold into enterprise and she brought up some amazing things there that I was like, yeah. huh, some uh, light bulb moments that made me reflect mm -hmm. back when I was selling in, into that space on things that I didn't take into uh, consideration. I think, you know, the big takeaway, right? I think a lot of when you think of enterprise or enterprise, when you think of like these big accounts, as a salesperson, you kind of go, right, right, or a consultant, whatever role. You look at these big accounts and you think, mate, if I win one, that's my whole year's budget, right? Or I can, you know, um, I win a couple of these and I've made President's Club, I'm making all this commission. But what Georgia really, really highlighted, which was um, for me uh, uh, just something that we should be um, discussing, the complexities around selling into enterprise, yeah? Like, I mean, talking IBM, there's not just the, the geographic layer, but you've got um, the country leader, you'll have a regional leader, you'll have a global leader, you, then you've got other departments and other leaders in different regions that are influencing the cycle, right, and the buying cycle and the buying process. So there's all these decision makers, influencers, champions, anti-sponsors that are surrounding that, that, that journey, yeah? And I think this is where, from a sales perspective, if you are going to pick that enterprise account, strategy yeah. kicks in. You've really got to give consideration and not put all your weight or all your energy of your pipeline into just one or two opportunities because they, A, will take a while to close, and B, the risk associated with them not closing or not pushing forward in the time that you want is actually really high, right? So you have to have a bit of a balance in managing your pipeline when you've got key strategic accounts in there. 100% because you don't control it. You don't control their internal meetings, no. when they're having, what's their priority. It, it can blow out by 12 months yeah. plus if you're not careful. Absolutely. And I think if I, if I go back to early days when I was selling into enterprise, um, I had a lot of deals that were just stalled, right? Because I was selling into the local um, market, decision makers were overseas, and I would very rarely get the opportunity to go there. And I, I, didn't, I didn't actually factor that into my strategy. Mm -hmm. If I fast forward to the point where I was really, I was winning these global accounts, um, it was part of my strategy that at some point I would, they would be part of that conversation. Um, whether we do it via Zoom or I would literally fly to the US, fly to Dublin, wherever it was, to go and meet that that one of the key decision makers. Yeah, so it become part of the action plan that we had developed with our champion. It was you know at some point we need to bring the wider committee into the process, um, but that was a strategic action plan that we were thinking about at the start of the process. And again, if I look back early in my career, it was stuff that I didn't do. And often deals would get, um, would, would just get to a point of nowhere, go no man's land. Yeah. Because they didn't know how to progress the conversation. I didn't know. And therefore it just got stuck. Right. 
So let's dive into it. Let's talk a bit about how would we sell. Yeah, I want you to tackle, you know, first, you know, our doing your initial outreach to Georgia. You've locked in the meeting. Yeah. Um, but I want I want you to take this this one a little bit more further. I want you to how would you mm. how would you address the first meeting to then get your follow on because you know that you know during that course she's not yep. going to have the, the final say. So I want you to tackle that part too because enterprise, like we've said, goes deeper. Yeah. Well, I think the first things first, right? You could tell a lot by the way that Georgia was engaging with us, and she made she gave us you know there's a, there's a key tip. The sales professional that she met with, um, even though the meeting didn't go well, the six months prior went really well. It was six months of social selling, uh, content, um, engaging with, with her posts. Um, so that tells you that George is really, really relational, right? very, very relationship focused, yeah? So um, first things first, the first meeting, it's not about selling. And she also mentioned that, right? Um, the first meeting, because of the fact of the role that she plays, the fact that she doesn't hold budget, the fact that um, there are budget cycles that if there is a need, they have to go through a process to get it into the budget cycle. The first meeting is all about understanding, just leveraging some insight around problems that you think are important to her to get validation that she's suffering those problems. And then using that opportunity to just form a relationship. Yeah. And start the conversation and get the conversation going about, you know, what are the things that are important to her? What are some of the gaps that she's contending with in her role? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because she's, you know, as you could hear, she's very tactical, very much about regional execution um, versus global strategy. So there would be things that are impacting her and her team, local team, right? Um, so that first meeting, it's all about understanding what is impacting her. What's, what, what are the things that are impacting her market? And then once you determine that, then it's about putting out a, a bit of a plan of how can I nurture, how can I educate and um, seek guidance and, and coaching from her on what does their internal process okay. look like so that if, if the opportunity arose to say, hey, let's actually define this problem further. And she spoke about impact, yeah. She spoke about the importance of, impact and she also mentioned a key result area for her was revenue so enablement's about revenue so if we were able to help her with some you know value creation on some insight we could share or some content that we could provide her that would help her in her journey to increasing revenue in local market that would go a long way for her to then start to sponsor us in because that's the only way you would be able to sell into that organization through Georgia would be she'd need to sponsor us in, help really articulate the problem statement, then get her leader, her local leader into the conversation because he would have to be, he or she would have to be part of that equation. And as part of that process, get validation that that's important on their mm-hmm. agenda because it might be important for Georgia, but the local country leader might be saying, hey, that's it. that's not even remotely something that's on my top three priorities. How do you, how do you yeah. derive that? Is this um, through Georgia or are you trying to attend another meeting with someone else in there? Yeah. Um, so you would you would fundamentally use Georgia as your internal coach, okay. as your guide, right? And then say and try to come up with, okay, you know, the country leader, this is potentially what's happening. Um, 
you know, if we are to meet, these are some of the things that we should discuss around the problem so that he or she can say, yeah, actually, this could be something that is a priority for us. Let's explore this further. And then, you know, once we get the country leader on board, it's about saying, okay, well, what does the process look like to seek to seek approval in the business? Mm-hmm. Um, as she said, if, if, if there is already a, an existing software in place that's doing, if you're selling software, that's doing parts of and they don't like overlap, actually trying to understand, this is where it's okay to get a no right, actually trying to understand early in the process, is this, uh, is this an opportunity that is simply never going to progress, right? Is, is the CTO committee that she said assesses this stuff, are they so locked in, like say they're with Salesforce, right? And just, and they're, they're not, but just say they're using Salesforce, they're using a particular CRM. Say they're so invested that unlocking any of that is just going to cause so much complications that potentially that's not going to happen. Right. Um, and I'm not saying, you know, you, you, you put your flag up and retreat, but as a salesperson, you've got to kind of also pick the opportunities that you can influence to a point of decision. Yeah. And it's actually okay to sometimes say, you know what, this is one that no matter what we do, there is going to be an internal blocker that potentially won't enable us to progress. Now, on the flip side, you know, if the business case for change, if the problem is so significant that we think the CTO team will do an assessment and go, you know what, there's actual value in transforming from one tool to another, then great. But it's also about understanding what that would be, what that would mean for them. The only way you can do that in an organization like IBM is with your internal champions. And there's going to be multiple ones. So Georgia, the country leader, possibly the regional leader, and then you'd have to migrate that conversation to somebody in HQ in, in, in the office that has a say on this. And as you can see, this is why those enterprise deals have so many people involved in that buying process, right? Because then you've got the CTO's office, then you've got finance, then you'll have legal, right? Then you'll have risk, yeah? Then you've got the internal people that this decision will impact that could possibly be a negative influence if they get wind that they're going to have to change the way that they do things. There's so many nuances here. Anyway, but in order to sell to Georgia, is there any way to deal with that? Yep. Like the the, the negative the detractors the, the that you're going to come up against that you may not have in the meeting. Like, is there something that you've often had prepared for and say, hey, if this does come up, here's something for you, Georgia or X, to yeah. to leverage. Well, that's the buyer enablement piece, Dave. So that's the buyer enablement about this is why, and she mentioned a term that's really important. You're an advisor, right? This is why you're not selling to her at this point. You're actually helping them consider things they might not have considered. So helping them consider, you know, consider the impact of putting this to the CTO board and them saying ABC, how would that impact this process? Get them to think about things they haven't considered because that's true value creation, yeah? So an enterprise, there are a lot of things that they might not have considered. And if you've sold into the space before, you know what those barriers and those challenges are going to be. So help them to find what they are first, because then you can talk about how do you problem solve, right? So, you know, just to summarize, you know, selling to Georgia is one that's coming from having a relationship 
knowing that she's not the decision maker, but she's a key influence. Understanding that just because, you know, there are certain decisions that go right to the top, there could be some local things like, you know, that, like she said, she actually accelerated a part of her a program when she got wind of a bigger project. So that's why that relationship's fundamental and having that open dialogue, right? And then also going in with a value creation mindset first and knowing that this is not a short-term process. If you're looking for short-term wins in your pipeline, an account like IBM and Georgia is not your answer, right? It's going to take time. You're going to have to invest in it. And there is a good chance that the investment you make won't yield a return in the immediate future. You know, a lot of insights in this episode. It's, uh, you know, some some major takeaways for me is obviously, you know, enterprise, it's a long game. Um, so while it's great to have it in your account, don't rely on it because, you know, one thing that happens as well, a big risk during that whole process is that, you know, Georgia could change job during that time because it's such a lengthy process. It could be a two-year deal. Um, but Louis, thanks again for another great uh, insights and episode. And we'll see you all next week.